Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I'd like you to react to this statement. This is about you. This is about your thinking. And I'm wondering if you would say, yes, this is true of me, or no, this isn't true of me. Ready? People should be more like me. Not more like Matt, but this is personal for you. People should be more... Now, I'm, just to make it, make sure that like, you're with me on this and you're, you're seeing this in the right context, I want you to say it out loud together, okay? On the count of three, I want you to say, people should be more like me. So one, two, three. People should be more like me. Okay. How many of you would say, yes, I believe that's true? Raise your hand. Okay. I, I, now, okay. I appreciate you guys, and I probably predicted at least you two. Um, I, I would, I like, I, you know, this morning as I was, you know, getting ready to preach, I was like, yep, I, I know who's going to say yes. Um, so I'm just going to assume the rest of you would say, no, 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 I don't think that at all. Here's where I think at least a couple of us were honest, and the rest of us were afraid, um, because... When some, I'll take for myself, when I'm driving on the road, I don't think everyone should drive like me, partly because not everyone is as skilled as I am. <laughs> but that's not my point right now. Um, I don't think everyone should drive like me, but, but I think, Sherry, the, the, the words that come under my breath and over my breath while I'm driving... She would say that I think that everyone should be like me in driving. And when you think about it, when, when you are frustrated or mildly upset or, or just commenting on life in general, those comments, if they were used in, let's say, court against you, probably could go beyond reasonable doubt that you you would say that people should be like you. Does that make sense? <laughs> that the way we critique others is really to make them look more like us, to have the same values as us, to act more like us, to behave more like us, to speak more like us, all of those things. And so when, when the statement, people should be more like me, while very few of us would actually say, yes, I believe that to be true, most of us in our speech and the way we talk in the way we evaluate, in the way we critique, that statement is kind of true, isn't it? Because rarely do we critique someone in a way that is opposite of how we are. <laughs> Very rarely do we do that. We want people to become more like us. And, and so it's interesting that there is a, I think that there is a, a, a baseline human nature thing that we really do want people to be in our image rather than the image that they're currently in. I mean, when you, when you think about it, um, who do you tend to get along with better? Who do you have less conflict with? It's the people who tend to agree with you and are like you. 
And the people who don't agree with you and aren't like you, we tend to feel like they need to change. And, and, and so it's, it's interesting. Um, if, if, you look, if you look to do a little bit of research about, about a critical spirit, um, there's, there's four primary types of critical spirit that will show up. And, and one is, is called the gossiper. And the gossiper, really, when it comes down to it, the person who is, is maybe characterized as a gossiper is really about their information, which results into their worth. It's information they have and they can share, and it's not even necessarily always about the person they're talking about. It's actually, it, it draws attention to them. Then another type of critical spirit is called the judge, and the judge tends to have a lack of empathy or or uh, maybe even self-discernment because they're just about making judgments about other people, oftentimes not seeing the issues in their own life or maybe even the similarities between them and the ones that they're judging. The third type is called the slanderer, and that is one who makes false or partial statements, and oftentimes the person who slanders is kind of about making more of themselves or building themselves up by tearing others down. And then the last one that comes up is called the complainer, the one who's very often negative, uh, that there's never enough. Um, ultimately, the complainer ends at a place where the, there's, there's really, very little hope to hold on to. And then those are kind of four types of, of critical spirits. And, and it's interesting, the motivation of a critical spirit uh, there's, there's three things that, that psychologists and, and, and those who study this have come up with. There's the self factor, the fear factor, and the control factor. Only one of those is, is a TV show. But um, there's, there, there's the self factor, which is jealousy or envy or vengeance or hatred, holding grudges, grudges for personal gain. And, and, and my internal motivation when it comes to the self factor is this. The question that raises is, what will I gain when I, when I am about myself, when I am jealous or envious or that, it's the idea of, it answers the question for me, what will I gain? What will I get from this? When I'm maybe critiquing or criticizing or talking about this person, what will I gain from this situation? Because there's always something in it for me. Fear factor, it's when you feel threatened or, or, or you're acting out of self-protection, which is a different question. Rather than what will I gain, it's the question of what will I lose? When we're made, motivated by fear in our language and our treatment of other people, it's about something that I might be able to lose. As opposed to what I might gain, it's about what I might lose. And then the third one, control factor, is using manipulation or power or shame to gain control. And really, it's not about what I'll gain and it's not about what I'll lose, but it's what will I correct? What will I fix in this other person? That's that, that desire for control because I'm trying to fix something. And so it's what will I correct because I perceive that something's wrong and I'm going to correct it. And, and the problem with these things and these motivational pieces and these questions that we're answering for our own lives is that all of this tracks back to one thing and it, it tracks back to my surrender and my trust in Jesus and what he says. Jesus says a lot of things that we have a hard time with. Jesus says a lot of things that we say, yeah, but, but what about this, Jesus, if we're really being honest? And, and so what it comes down to is if you can't take Jesus' word for it, you really can't take words at all. 
And, and, so, and, so, and so this morning, as we get into just two verses in James chapter 4, um, the good news is it's only two verses, so it can't be that difficult, right? <laughs> it should be easy. It's only two verses. How hard can we get in two verses? So let me just read them. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So pretty much just reading the verse, we we should be all set, right? We're good. We're all set all set to move on. Um, Maybe the desire is to kind of move on. Uh, But it's interesting. In in the first part, James says, don't speak evil against your brother. And just to jump to the end real quick and to make sure that we're we're not missing something here at the end, he doesn't say, don't judge your brother. He says, don't judge your neighbor. So he goes from brother to neighbor, which expands from not only other believers, but he's talking about those who are outside, maybe, of our community of faith. And so he says, don't speak evil. As you look at at that, what James is talking about, it's the idea of speaking badly about someone. And and actually, coming off of what what he just said, um, right before he says this, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What is one of the primary things speaking negatively about someone else does for you? It exalts you, doesn't it? It's one of the primary things. And we can say, oh, no, 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 it, 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 helps, it helps them. When I, when I speak about someone else, I'm fixing them. But it does, make, it does exalt me as well. And so the last thing he says before he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so, so really he, he's jumping into this manifestation of pride. God resists and we are just called to avoid. And so, so some, some examples of what James seems to have in mind is, is, is this speaking evil or speaking badly of someone is to complain about or verbally attack or gossip, slander, lie about someone. Some of the examples some some commentators throw out as examples of what this might be talking about is disputing legitimate authority or slandering someone in secret or having an incorrect accusation or a partially true accusation. And so really what, what James is talking about, he's talking about this critical speech of others, of brothers and of neighbors. And, and so really the posture of criticism is, is really a, is, is a sinful posture because it is raising ourselves up above over others and places me on a collision course with God because of what God how God sees pride and arrogance. Criticism actually originates from an arrogant, selfish, and evil spirit. Critical speech oftentimes will wear a love mask, but is definitely not love at all. 
And, and, and here's where I want to make sure we understand each other because, because I talk about criticism and, and, and we may look, again, we look at passages like this and oftentimes we say, yeah, but, but you know, you don't just, everybody doesn't get a buy and everybody doesn't have this free. What if you're doing something wrong? You need to comment on it or something like that. And so here's the thing. There's a difference between criticism and accountability. Those are not the same things. In fact, let me, let me try and, and characterize criticism and accountability to, to start to understand a little bit of what James is talking about is, is off limits to those who claim to follow Jesus and what is, is a calling of those who claim to follow Jesus. So criticism, the, the posture and motivation behind criticism is done to hurt or judge. Accountability, on the other hand, is done, if, if we look at it from a biblical sense, and we're looking at life from a biblical sense, we should be, accountability is done to help in holiness and obedience. Criticism, you know, kind of is this thing where it's done to solve the problem. Accountability is actually done to grow the person into the person that Jesus wants them to become. Uh, criticism is really about me because as human beings who are not perfect, our criticism comes from a very deep place of really wanting everyone to be more like me. So criticism really, while we talk about another person, it really is about me, yet accountability is, contrary to what we might say, accountability is about the other person. No, accountability, the way God calls us to accountability, is about Jesus. Because accountability is me not trying to make you different from what you are but into something that I've constructed, but accountability is for me, me pointing you to Jesus. That's what accountability is. Criticism is oftentimes done in spectacle and self-righteousness. Oftentimes, criticism is, is done in a way that, that it, it draws attention to itself. It's kind of spectacle in nature, and, and it's, it comes from oftentimes a self-righteous place. But accountability actually comes from a place of respect and gentleness. Remember what Jesus says? He says, be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves. When we're dealing with other people who have maybe done something that we perceive as wrong or aren't behaving the way, how quickly does gentle as doves go out the window? Like, I'm not a fan of snakes. Snakes are bad. And they serve no purpose, other than to surprise you in a bad way. But we definitely, I definitely lean toward the wisest serpents part than gentle as doves. But notice that, that in Jesus' statement, he doesn't give priority to one or the other. He says, live with those things in tension and firmly pursue both, both of those things. And so accountability is done with respect and gentleness toward that person. A criticism tends to tear down. If you have been criticized by a person, is your immediate response, think about this, the last time you were criticized by someone, was your immediate response to that of, yeah, man, I really need to grow from this. I don't know anyone who's been criticized by someone else who their immediate response is that. Now, maybe they can come to a place of saying, okay, let me weed through this 
and I can come to a place. If you really want to help someone grow, then you will build them up. And that's not lie to them, but accountability builds up. It doesn't tear down. Accountability is that thing where it seems like we're in this together, where criticism seems like a mic drop. Accountability seems like it's something that we're going to build together. I'm going to help you with this. And I'm not going to help you from a place of superiority. I'm going to help you from a place of walking through this together. Criticism, again, if we, if we look at what the Bible says over and over, criticism is, sounds like it's more satanic and accountability is holy. I mean, a couple, a chapter ago, um, James defines worldly wisdom as satanic. How does the world correct each other? Through pointing to Jesus, respect, gentleness, building up? Nope. Through criticism. And finally, here's the thing that that I think is is a big issue for us today. Criticism is almost always public. And I don't mean it has to be written and put up on a billboard. I mean that criticism is often discussed in a group of people before it gets the person it's about. So if it's not between you and that other person, it's public. But accountability is private. Accountability does what Jesus says, go to this person and talk to them. Go to the person you have the issue with. See, it, it follows and makes sense because criticism has to be public because ultimately criticism is about making me look better or me getting my way. Accountability has nothing to do with me. In fact, accountability is hard and there's a commitment and it's long. And so accountability is private. And understand that private doesn't mean secretive. Private doesn't mean a cover-up. Private means doing it in a way that is godly and holy and actually honors the image of God that was placed in that person who might need to be corrected. See, as, as, James, as James talks through this, he says, again, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Again, remember that James is really Jewish. And he's really deeply connected to the teachings of Jesus. And so there's, there's a passage that, that, that is connected to what James is saying here in James in Leviticus chapter 19. Listen to what, what is written in Leviticus 19, starting in verse 15. It says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. This says, don't be partial to the poor and don't defer to, the, to the, those who have much. He says there's a different path, righteousness, 
You judge your neighbor. He says, you shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice the, 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 the environment, the atmosphere that the Old Testament places around interaction with others. It is the law of neighbor love. It's, it's true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we see here as, as Moses writes these things down and, and we know that these are from God because, because there's this I am the Lord saying this is what I want from you, how I want you to treat one another, that to their own people, they needed to, to treat each other this way and the thing that they, were, that they were always needing to keep in mind and rise up to is loving one another because God is the Lord. And he talks about neighbors. And and in the New Testament, Jesus defines who is my neighbor. Basically, in in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, your neighbor are those that you hate and are different from you. Which could be your actual neighbor or someone across the globe. And so that's how Jesus defined neighbor so, so, so understand that as, as James even talks through this, says, don't speak evil against your brother. And then he says, don't judge your neighbor. That's pretty all-inclusive. But it's interesting. So, so the way that we, as Jesus' disciples, speak and talk about and treat others must, at the bottom foundational point, exhibit or reflect love of neighbor. And so James's application, uh, he applies the new covenant in Christ to the Old Testament love command, which is exactly what Jesus did. Because again, James is very much one foot in the Old Testament. Actually, he's probably a lot of life in the Old Testament, but both feet firmly planted in Jesus. You see, the Old Testament law had been engulfed by the second most important law of the kingdom. Jesus is asked, what is the most, what is the, the highest, most important law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what James is writing here is he's saying that the Old Testament law is engulfed and swallowed up by what Jesus says is the second most important law of the kingdom. Love God first, love others. And then Jesus does this little magic trick eventually in his speaking, and he says, by the way, if you don't love your neighbor, you can't love God. So it sounds like it's also somehow the first most important law in the Old Testament (laughs) and in the kingdom. Because Jesus says you can't love God if you don't love your neighbor. And so really, what what James is saying here is is that criticism contradicts that I love my neighbor, which puts me in a difficult position. And we need to remember, again, that maturity in God's kingdom is not measured by longevity. It's not even re- measured by results. It's not measured by accurate declarations. 
but it is measured by obedience to the words of Jesus. And so really what James is saying here in a positive way is that my speech must be about another's transformation, not about me, therefore must be primarily respectful, gentle, building up, and private. That's how I, that is my normal activity with others. That is the norm of how I interact with other people. I'm not saying that's the norm of how I interact with other people, but that's the norm of how a person who is pursuing Jesus ought to interact with other people. And, and, so, and so it's interesting because James doesn't just say, uh, don't do this, but he says, why not to do this? He says, he says that, that, that the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and destroy and, and so James connects this to something which, which is clinically called a divinity complex. Uh, how many of you are familiar with a divinity complex? It's where someone believes that they are divine. It's an actual mental disorder, and a number of movies over the years have highlighted that. I, I don't even remember the movie that it was, but it was a movie, and, and, and one part of the, the movie was in a, in, a, in a mental hospital, and I remember there was a guy laying on a, on a gurney, and... And uh, one of the guys, I think it may have been Michael Keaton who played this character, was walking through the hallway and he had a divinity complex. And he walked by the guy in the gurney and said, you are healed, arise and walk. And the guy rolled off the gurney to try to stand off and fell on the floor. And I mean, it was... was (laughs) So again, if you're not Jesus, don't go around, you know, telling people to rise and walk unless the Holy Spirit tells you to. And, and And so again, it's this idea of a divinity complex, which is... This idea that I am above the law and that God will always agree with me almost to the point that, that, that he and I are, are, are of the exact same mind. Where Here's the reality is that I am not above the law. I'm actually condemned by the law save by Christ. Uh, secondly, um, this, this feeling that maybe I am God, I'm the one who can judge rightly, judge with pure motives, but the reality is God is actually God, not me. And again, none of us would actually claim to be God, but very often we inhabit the roles that God has that are attributed solely to him. Um, we, we talk a lot lately about government overreach, which is that idea that, that the government is going beyond the roles that it should be functioning in. And that's a real thing. The government doesn't just overreach today, but the government, governments are prone toward overreach. But it's interesting because we are guilty of kind of the same thing when it comes to God because we have this overreach into categories and areas where God calls sole authority, but we tend to overreach into those as well for the same reason the government does. We think very highly of ourselves. And, and so, so what, what James says here is he says that judging others infringes on the unique right of God himself. Therefore, when I judge others, I am stepping into territory that only God should inhabit. 
he, he says, and, and he kind of qualifies this, he says, he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. So there's, there's something helpful in what James says here. He says, look, this does have something to do with judging about a person's eternal destination, their salvation, because when he says there's only one law, lawgiver and judge who can save and destroy, that's talking about eternity, that only God can see and determine whether or not a pers- person actually has forgiveness of sins. And, and so he says, who is able to seek, save, and destroy? And so that is about kingdom citizenship and, and eternal destination. Like, I don't, I'm not able to accurately determine with any kind of real consequence whether or not another person belongs to Jesus Christ. No, there's lots of things that I can look at to say, hmm, it seems like you should question whether or not you belong to Jesus because of your behavior, but I cannot make a judgment on that. Now, what's interesting, though, he says, who is able to save and destroy, and so maybe the question for us is this, do I, with my words and actions, destroy people, or does my influence point people down a path of salvation? Does my influence and my interaction, do my words, my language, does my language move, to move people towards salvation or destruction? Do I leave people with little hope about what God can do, regardless of their behavior? Does my criticism actually dig people in further into, into what they already think, or does my, maybe my accountability with them shift them to a focus on Jesus. So really, are my preferences, my discernment, and my morality replacing or amending the law of the kingdom? Am I maybe getting to letting people know about Jesus, but am I getting to that in a way that does not actually honor Jesus? He says that we are doers of the law, not modifiers or changers of it. And, and part, of, part of our problem is that we have a really difficult time equally applying those things to ourselves as we apply them to others. One of the things that frust, frustrates me most about driving is when someone misses their turn and then they don't accept the consequences and responsibility of missing their turn, and they just need to go up and do a legal move to either turn, go into a part, whatever, but you don't just flip a U-turn in the middle of the road. You don't stop traffic. I don't do that. I'm a good person. (laughs) Unfortunately, there have been times that I have done that. See, I'm much more quickly willing to hold other people to that than I... See, for me, there's extenuating circumstances all the time. That's how it works. You see, we are not good lawgivers and good judges. We're just not. That's why they're, they're really... I don't know, this is me talking. That's why I think there can never really be justice in our legal system. 
because the people pursuing justice in our legal system are not good judges, no matter what their platform is. They're incapable of being, there is only one good judge who can be trusted with a judgment. And, and so really, we, you know, again, and, and we talk about, James says, okay, don't judge. And then we say, okay, but, but there are things that we need, to, we, we need to evaluate. We need to judge these things. Yes, and there's a difference between judgment versus in the way Jesus calls us to declaring the truth of God. See, here James is communicating the truth of God revealed in Christ, and James is not being hypocritical. James has said some hard things. He just called in the previous passage, he said, you adulterous people. That feels judgy, doesn't it? Like, no one in here, if I was like, you adulterous person, you'd be like, yeah, I feel not judged. This is James being hypocritical by calling these people adulterous people and then saying, don't judge. (laughs) You see, What James is saying is don't judge by my standards, my wisdom, and my justice because all of those things have to do with me. When we judge, we judge others with our best interest in mind. I don't care what the issue is. We can't get around that because we are not Jesus. We are still sinful. We are still prone to wander. And so we will do that regularly. You see, if I am changed by Jesus, I am under his mercy and I should live by his mercy and his rule. So Jesus says mercy over judgment, which means his justice, not mine. I'm not sure if my justice and God's justice will ever be one and the same until I see Jesus face to face. Now, I can have pretty solid justice, but it always, to some degree, comes back to me. Now, here's the thing. If God says something clearly in his word, it might be wise, it might be my place to repeat it to someone else. And I say might be because just because God says something in his word doesn't mean you have the freedom to go and yell it at someone else. It might be wise, it might be your place to do that, but when you do that, are you doing it with the heart and holiness of Jesus Christ? And we, all, we always like to go and say, well, yeah, he overturned tables in the, in the temple once. <laughs> what did he do with everyone else? You go back to Isaiah, it says, a, 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 a bruised reed he will not break. We're kind of all about the breaking <laughs> when we go after each other. We are done with it. We've had it. And this is it. I'm going to go talk to that person. I'm going to fire off this email. I'm going to let everyone know in 12 words what I think about this person. And so my question is, (laughs) is it wise and is it my place to communicate what God said to this person? And if it is, because it very well might be, am I going to do it in the heart and holiness of Jesus Christ? Now, if God didn't say it clearly, then 
don't even wonder if you should communicate it. (laughs) Definitely don't speak clearly on God's behalf. One of the areas that we get in, the church gets into all kinds of messes is when we try to clarify what God didn't say clearly. (laughs) Because that's all about us. It's all about us. See, we as citizens of the kingdom of God are not meant to criticize and judge. We are called first and foremost over and over and over again to be low and humble, not high and mighty. That's where God calls us to be. So what? So what is James saying? He's saying this. He says, let God be judge. Here's God's part. Let God be judge. God's part is this. God is a good and perfect judge. Never makes a mistake. Never misses the whole story. How many times have I judged a situation as a dad with my kids and I have judged inaccurately because I didn't know the whole story? How many times has God judged inaccurately because he didn't know the whole story? Like never. And so God's part is to be the good and perfect judge. What is my part? My part is radical love and radical obedience. That's my part. And you see, radical love and radical obedience is way more difficult than just jumping to a conclusion and deciding this is it. It is, takes a lot more time, a lot more effort. It is really difficult, but that's what we're called to, radical love and radical obedience. Revelation 12, 10 and 11. I mentioned this last week, but, 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 but think about this for a second. When we think about the evil in the world, what is our first inclination? We've got to radically fight the evil in the world. Listen to what, listen to what Revelation 12 says. It's talking, it, it says this, John says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The real enemy has been thrown down. So the question is, how did they defeat the enemy? Here's how. It says that he's been thrown down and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How does evil get conquered as believers, as those who follow Jesus? How do we conquer evil? By the blood of the lamb or the gospel of Jesus Christ in his heart and holiness. The blood of the lamb, meaning that there is sacrifice involved, there is surrender involved, that it is by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says there is hope for you no matter what. And it is only by the blood of the lamb that you can receive that. And he says by the word of their testimony, their testimony of faithfulness to Jesus and his ways. Their faithfulness to the lamb. In other words, their resemblance to the lamb, their reflection of the lamb, how they resemble the lamb. And so how do we defeat evil in this world? It says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Radical love and obedience is defined by the sacrificial act the lamb has modeled for us. That lamb will judge but we lay down our lives for the Lamb's message, even if it requires our lives, which includes our comfort, our preferences, our agendas. 
that don't directly result in the kingdom growth. And again, James doesn't limit this to just not being critical of our, those within the family of God, but our neighbors as well. Why? Because our neighbors, who are not, not part of the family of God presently, desperately need forgiveness and salvation. And so here's our challenge. Here's, here's for us. We, we are really bad at this old thing that I learned a long time ago at hating the sin and loving the sinner. I, I've come to believe that that's a terrible place to camp out at. I think foundationally it's probably a bad way to start because hating the sin and loving the sinner, we are not good at doing that. We are not good at multitasking that kind of thing. And so often I think it's an excuse rather than a genuine tension that we hold together in actually loving. Because when I've hated the sin and claimed I've loved the sinner, that person who I am looking at, how often would they say, yeah, I feel like you love me? (laughs) Because I'm the one who defines whether or not I love, not them. But if they can't see the love, then what's the point? And so how does Jesus demonstrate loving sinners and hating sin? He suffers long. He suffers long. And and, and so really, this all comes back to me thinking about and understanding who I am in God's kingdom and what my role is. My role is to love and obey Jesus Christ. And so here's two things that I would suggest that we do as I close. One, before you interact, before I interact, before I, 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 I speak, before I write, before I have body language, think before you communicate. Is this true? Is this necessary? Is this helpful? Is this kind? Is this criticism? Or is this accountability? Think before you declare. And think about the context. Because if you are making a public declaration, be careful because it's probably more about you than anything else. And what does God say? Humble yourself so he can exalt you. If you're busy exalting yourself, you're placing yourself at odds with Jesus. Second thing is this. Again, think before you declare. Is this clearly from God? Or is it, about, is it about me? Where does this come from? Where is my declaration coming from? Is it to protect me? Is it to gain something? Is it to not lose something? Or is it to, to correct something? Am I truly helping other people to become like Jesus through the way I interact? And that's the hard thing. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about This is not about how bad we are at doing things. This is about how we can help other people find the freedom and the hope and the joy that's found in Jesus Christ. So the next time you are ready to go after somebody, I want you to ask yourself, am I drawing them toward life in Christ 
or am I drawing them to just frustrate me less? Because those are actually two very different arrival points. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for your love for us. God, I thank you that you are clear with us in what you expect. Father, I pray that, that we would be, God, so aware of the words that we use and the motivations that are coming from inside of us. God, that we would truly be men and women after your heart and we would live in your holiness that we would be characterized as radical love and radical obedience people. Father, I pray that we would not be discouraged by maybe taking an evaluation of how we have behaved, but God, we could be encouraged by what is possible through surrender to your Holy Spirit, that we can be those people, and that we see glimpses of that, And so, Father, I pray this morning that we would ruthlessly obey the words that we've heard today. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. 